Welcome to Canada and the World podcast. I'm your host, Besma Momani, professor here at the Balsley School of International Affairs and the University of Waterloo. Join me as I take you along in discussions with academics, journalists, and experts looking at what's going on in the world today. So welcome, everybody, to Canada and the World podcast. I'm here in Ottawa with some fantastic guests. Uh, I have to my left Christian Luprecht, a professor at the Royal Military College. I have Claire Valen, who's the NATO Association of Canada. And I have Aisha Ahmed, professor at the University of Toronto. And I have Steve Seidemann, professor at Nipsia, our rival. But we love Nipsia, too, so we won't uh, hold it against him. Okay, so um, we are on a panel today, some of us, to talk about how the world sees Canada. And I'd love for you guys to give me sort of your one word answer first, and then we're going to explain it. So think of a word that to you captures everything that sa- that the world thinks about Canada. Very, very easy, I know. Christian, uh, I know you love to give us a 20-minute answer, but give us your one word. Idealist. Claire? I want to say two. I want to say misguidedly ambitious. Ooh. Aisha? Um... I'm not going to give you a one-word uh, answer, but... Uh, True academic. To, honestly, it varies. Yeah. Okay. Varies. varies. Okay, that's a one-word answer. It varies. I love it. Steve? Liberal. Liberal. Okay. So then let's think about sort of why we're using those terms. And it sounds like everybody has an answer that I think will really fit in here nicely. So, Christian, start us. Why do you say what you say? I think we're too much stuck in a paradigm of, of being too far away from all the challenges in the world. And so we have these very idealist uh, ways of trying to deal with the world. And we think we can all make the world a better place and whatnot. And, you know, so I, I think in many ways, this is reflective in what I always think are the greatest threats to Canadian security, which are issues such as ignorance, apathy, incompetence, ideology, and not taking seriously the fact that as a country, as a democracy, as rule of law and our basic values, we face serious existential threats to our own way of life and to that of our allies and partners, and that we need to confront these in vigorous, innovative, and constructive ways to prepare us for the challenges that we're going to be facing for the 21st century. And I think in many ways, we're continuing to fight the last war, not the next war. Claire, um, you belong to an organization that obviously is one that wants to work with allies. You also are a journalist. I remember talking to you when you were with iPolitics. So this is, you know, a familiar beat for you. What do you think is the way the world or how do you think the world sees Canada today? As Christian said, we're very far away from a lot of what is happening around the world. And for so long, as Christian also said, that was the case that we didn't have the choice. We're fighting that last war where situationally we were in a location and that's what that meant. But now in a digital era, that is not what that means. Canada is... Trudeau's socks. Canada is bad. Those are good socks, by the way. They're not bad socks. They're not they, bad. I have to say, though, he had a <laughs> pair made for NATO, and they were atrocious. They were pink socks with a blue square, and then on that blue square was the NATO emblem. They were not well-printed socks. I think someone just paid $5. <laughs> but that being said... The misguidedly ambitious statement I made is that we have a sense of what we want to do and we will talk about it. We act like this middle nation when we can be a much larger nation. And we are trying to do things that fall under both categories and are not necessarily doing either of those things especially well. So it's not as though what we are doing well suggests that we should be focusing more 
in a sort of middle power stance or in a larger power stance, we aren't acting in a way that tells us how we should be acting going forward. And that's why I'm saying misguided. Aisha, you had the classic academic response because obviously we do not like to put things in one word terms. Um, that's why journalists find us frustrating. But, you know, you had a very, I think, pointed response. And I'd love for you to elaborate on that. When I say that, you know, how the world sees Canada varies, it's because it's, it's truly ridiculous to think that the world is somehow a monolith that's going to see us all in one way. I think it would be charming if we could oversimplify all of the audiences that we are signaling to and said that they all had the same response to that signal. But as scholars, we already know that there are, you know, different responses to signals, whether that signal is going to an enemy or an ally. And that's already on the presupposition that the audiences we're signaling to are also states. And so there are, how are the other countries in the world seeing Canada? That varies whether or not you are a friendly country or an opponent. You know, I think some of our, our friends and allies in NATO see us as upholding some traditional ideas about, you know, the international order, uh, whereas perhaps some of our, our, you know, not so friendly relationships with Saudi Arabia and increasingly with China, they see our behavior very differently. And so there is no one word answer. How we are seen in the world uh, varies depending on the particular dyadic interaction with the other party because reputation is a relational concept. And so our identity in the world isn't just what we project. There's an interactive effect with the audience as well. And that's also just assuming that the only audience we have are states when in fact we already know that there are a whole bunch of audiences like, you know, societies, communities, non-state actors that are also looking at Canada's behavior sometimes uh, in grand great power ways and other times in these sort of complex interventions where our military gets into the muck with, you know, a lot of other actors on the ground. And communities will see Canada very differently in that context as well. So we don't have a simple answer to it. If I can say as the former journalist, it really is important, as you said, not to just consider the only audience as the state actor, because, for example, while a state might want to be more critical or be less critical of Canada, considering its own diplomatic background, how its citizenry sees Canada, whether it takes it seriously enough or not, as is often the case, can also be a huge influential factor. Steve? I use the word liberal for a couple of reasons. One is that I think one of the few things that unites all Canadians is a sense that Canada's role in the world is to help buttress international institutions, that we think we invented peacekeeping and all that stuff. We didn't. I'm an American. I, I, I'm kind of skeptical about all these claims. But there's there's that there's that belief. There's also the basic idea of liberalism, democracy, free markets, all the rest of the stuff. And so Canada is a liberal voice. And I think right now is identified as being one of the most reasonable voices of the liberal international order. But I also meant liberal in the kind of sense of, aren't you being a little liberal with that? The kind of notion that you're kind of reckless, loose with. And so Canada is kind of loose with its ambitions, which is that it. Uh, I think one of the dangers of this current government that, that was they set really high expectations about what it would do. And then it kind of does the very least it can do. So it shows up in Mali for exactly a year. And when they're asked to spend three more months, they're like, no, 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 we've done our job. And when you look at the feminist aid policy, well, it may be more feminist, but it's not more aid. And so it, they're, they're very, you know, and it's not just this government, previous governments as well. They're very loose with uh, what they say they're going to do and then what they actually do. 
because uh, Canada is actually more miserly than than it sets up its image as. So I think that's a that's a key idea of this stuff. But I think as the world looks at Canada, I think if you take a look at the democratic publics, they find Canada to be a more reasonable version of the United States. They find that the United Ouch. States, uh, no, it's Ouch. a it, in terms of a voice for you know the United States sets itself up as a voice of democracy and a free trade and of liberalism, but it tends to be seen as being very hypocritical, hypocritical in that. Canada, while it is hypocritical in that, is less obviously so and less less obnoxiously so, and is also uh, less in your face about supporting all this other stuff. And so when Canada says something, it actually resonates a bit more because it doesn't seem as ideologically biased as the United States. So it's seen as a voice of reason. So right now, who are the, who are the upholders of the international liberal order? And the answers are Trudeau and Merkel. It's Germany. And she's and, leaving. And she's leaving. And we'll see. Germany probably will have somebody else who will do the same kind of thing. We don't tend to look at Abe of, of Japan. We tend not to look at Macron. We tend not to look, at, certainly not at Italy. But people will look at Canada as being one of the last great voices for the existing order with all of its warts. You know, I think, Steve, you uh, you point to one really important thing, which is the, um, you know, the tendency of our government to engage in this sort of symbolic politics, but that there's a disparity in the actual execution. And so there's this large promise and then sort of poor performance in the uh, delivery of this sort of vision of the, of the international order. But that really also speaks to the fact that um, our ability, at least from my perspective, our ability to, you know, champion the international order as it is and to... Be be perhaps more forward thinking or more liberal when it comes to certain files like, you know, feminist foreign policy or, you know, uh, human rights or whatever, which of course there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy on. But climate that, change. Climate change. Oh my God, like world's biggest hypocrites. And yet the reason that we engage in these sorts of soft politics or symbolic politics is because some of our hard security interests have been upheld by our primary ally in the United States. And I don't think we can talk about Canada's reputation in the world, without also looking at the fact that our primary security interests are tied to other countries, particularly to the United States, and that that relationship is a bit on the rocks. There's an important historical context too to remember that Canada is a founding member of NATO, not necessarily because Canada was at the time a leading nation when NATO was sort of decided upon. Washington made it a point of saying that Canada needed to be at the table as an independent nation, not as part of the UK, but as its own freestanding nation because they wanted to empower their their closest ally physically and make them an actual strong ally in a world where you would need that. So much of what Canada is now has to be thought of in the context of we were built to hold that role in context of the United States, much like Steve said. We aren't as overtly hypocritical, but in a lot of ways, we certainly are. But to be fair, Canada has shown up in almost every NATO mission. It didn't show up. It's not in Afghanistan today, but it's shown up in Bosnia, Kosovo, Libya, and all the rest. So in terms of when we get to these larger discussions about what does NATO, what does Canada do, it actually shows up. And in Afghanistan and Libya, it actually did more than most. It had a greater latitude than most. It was more dependable than most. It was more reliable than most. And so even if we get to, to these debates about 2% and all the rest of it in terms of whether we spend enough money, uh, in terms of upholding the transatlantic values, Canada's actually done a pretty good job in that. Uh, Absolutely. And when people seem to forget, when they talk about transatlantic, it, the United States and Europe gets invited to the room and the people think, oh, there's this other thing out there. But in the reality of NATO, Canada ends up getting these days primary positions because it's done a good job the past 15 years or so. And that's as far as anybody's memory, memory goes. tends to go. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think I'll get back to the values point in a moment, but I think the part of the problem is that we're starting with the proposition of values as opposed to making the proposition of values a, a consequence of a number of other actions in which we engage. But for instance, uh, Kerry's point about referring to Canada as a as a nation, I mean, this is part of the challenge that we have in this country. We're a country, a small country with limited resources. And as Aisha pointed out, there's a bunch of, a number of different audiences. And so, for instance, we th- outsiders think of Canada as a nation, but of course, Canada is not a nation. Canada is and will always be a multi-nation country of multiple founding peoples, an immigrant country with many diverse constituencies. And so internally, domestic politics means that your foreign policy is always going to be highly contested in that regard by different constituencies. And we know this both historically and in the contemporary um, environment. But if we also then think about this internationally, we have our national defense obligations, we have our bilateral obligations to the United States, we have our collective security obligations, we have regional security interests and stability interests. But we also, of course, have uh, three different oceans um, on the west and east coast that have very different security structures and very different security interests where we're always trying to be present in all these different theaters. And so when in doubt, we prioritize the bilateral and the collective defense relationship because those are our two most important strategic uh, relationships, bilaterally and the relationship with Europe, which is where we want to preserve harmony, stability, uh, unity. And so it means, for instance, that we're largely missing in action when it comes to much of the Asia-Pacific. And so then when we're trying to get things done with regards to our relations with um, a large country such as China, uh, other countries in the region will look to us and say, now you want our help. Where have you been for the last 20 years? And so it's this problem of always, you know, we always pretend that we can punch above our weight when it comes to foreign policy. But of course, as our co- uh, uh, colleague Joel Sokolsky would remind us, there's no such boxing class as punching above your weight. And you need to kind of figure out where you're going to punch. Are you going to punch lightweight, heavyweight, medium weight. And I think as a country, we want to sort of try to be sort of medium to heavyweight in all these different areas. And so as a result, we overpromise and in many cases underdeliver because what Canadians want to see and what our obligations and interests are, are often two very different things. And so we make these idealist promises about things such as peacekeeping, which has never been about peacekeeping. It's always been about um, trying to stop the Americans and the United, uh, the Americans and, and at the time the Soviet Union from going to war. But somehow we've perpetuated this myth, this ideal that we smithed it, uh, on which we that we continue to promise Canadians and we run elections on it and we say we're going to go to Africa and make the world a better place. But then when we're constrained on resources, it turns out that, as Steve says, well, we can go for a year and we'll do a very limited commitment on lift capacity and we can't extend that because we only have so many assets to go around and we're fully committed in many other parts of the world. Uh, the one thing I push back on, I think, is that the reason why we don't make a difference in Asia versus Europe is because of back goes back to the institutions, which is we know in Europe we have institutions where we plug into. We plug into NATO. We can make a difference through NATO. Uh, if you go to Asia, who do you work with? And the answer is, well, either you work with the Koreans or you work with the Japanese or you work with whoever, but there's not a multilateral entity that can allow Canada to actually have something that makes its voice heard, make, can have a, boy, a role to play. What is Canada's role in Asia? And the answer is, we don't know because there's no place that it fits. So it's And, and the reality is, is that you know Asia happens to be a big place. So, you know, whatever assets we throw into the mix are going to be very small. And so it's always going to be a challenge about playing a role in Asia. That's something we have to work on. But I don't see it as a conflict between Eastern Canada and Western Canada. I think it's just a basic reality that Asia is more complex. Uh, One of the consistencies in this government is whenever they go to Europe, the trips go well. Whenever they go to Asia, it's 
a mess. I'd use profane terms, but this is probably a PG podcast. But when they go to Asia, whether it's Japan or or China or India, it's a mess. But when they go to Europe, it's everybody's happy. And so part of that has to do with the institutions within Canada too, that global affairs is stronger, uh, it seemed to be, that PMO, PCO are stronger, it seems to be, on European stuff. And they're very weak on Asian stuff. And we see this repeated behavior. I completely agree with what Steve said about, you know, our, our capacities being different in different parts of the world. But one thing that Canada does is we don't ever fight alone. We're always part of a multilateral uh, commitment, you know, in a, in a war theater. And what that also means is that, you know, as often a smaller party, uh, we're not always leading the call in terms of mission design. Uh, and we're so, a strategy consumer, not a strategy producer, as they put it. Right. So so as strategy consumers, like we end up supporting missions that have already um, had often great power interests driv- driving how they are, are structured. Uh, you know, if you look at Afghanistan and our Mali mission now, there were key decisions made at the outset, not made by Canadians. And then we step into a role that then provides support for a mission that doesn't necessarily align with our values or interests or, or whatnot. And that, that means that the consequences of that mission have reputational effects for Canada as well. The reputational effects are an interesting thought. And leading back to something that Christian said and something that Steve then commented on afterwards is how this is perceived by the Canadians who... I mean, I can say as a journalist, and I'm sorry to everyone at the table, don't tend to care about international relations when it comes to an election. Polling data says, what do you care about? And as much as these may be the interesting flavor texts, and certainly what journalists love writing about, this is a reason I wrote about it. This is what is, it Yes, and it doesn't, it doesn't get votes. And so because of that, Canadians don't tend to involve themselves when it comes to that decision-making process. Canada is not going to make the decisions, and Canadians don't actually feel as if they're being expected to contribute to any sort of decision-making process. It's one of the major problems for NATO, at least NATO in Canada, is that awareness is at record lows, especially among youth, because Canada isn't making the decisions at NATO and guiding it. We're following. We're following well, but we're not leading. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. You know, Canadians may not feel like they're really a superpower that's got a big role to play in the decision-making process of organizations like NATO or in foreign policy generally. And so, you know, maybe it's not important to us. But, you know, this is a story we've heard time and time again. We've had, you know, Brian Bowe, Andrea Lane, um, even our conversation with Heather Smith, JC and Wilfred Greaves were all about this conversation about, you know, Canada and foreign policy. I, I do think that it is, frankly, more, more relevant than we give it credit for. But uh, we'll leave that for another day. Thank you very much, uh, all of you, for being here. Appreciate your time. And we're now going to turn to a interview I had with Rana Suess, uh, who is based in Jordan and is a New York Times reporter, and it's going to talk about how Canada is viewed from her vantage point. I'm joined by Rana Suess, uh, who has a fascinating book coming out in October, Voices of Jordan, published by Hearst Publisher, and of course, a freelancer with New York Times. Almost all the great pieces that come out of Jordan come uh, from Rana and the New York Times. Uh, Rana, let's talk about Syrian refugees and uh, how Canada has played a very interesting role. Of course, uh, some background, uh, Canada took almost 50,000 Syrian refugees, much lauded uh, move, although of course, not nearly as significant as some of the regional countries like Jordan, which has taken perhaps as close to a million different accounts, say 600,000, some up to a million. Turkey, of course, taking much more than that, and Lebanon taking perhaps the same as Jordan. But in terms of population, in, in Lebanon, about 25% of the population are, are Syrian refugees. And of course, in Jordan, very significant amount in such a small country. So how did that play? How did that play out, this this taking in 50,000 refugees, uh, Syrian refugees in Canada as, a, as an analyst in the region? How did that play out here? So... 
For many Syrian refugees, and I've met some who have gone to Canada, some who are actually waiting to go to Canada. They they're on the, they just finished their medical tests and their security clearance are and are just waiting to go. I think there is a feeling that Canada is is a, mu- a much friendlier, more open place than other countries, uh, whether honestly it's Europe or the U.S. today. Mm-hmm. Um, they see it as a place where there is social justice. Um, where they can build their lives, where there's a better life for their children. That really what I really want to emphasize is hope. Mm-hmm. They see Canada as their place of hope. And opportunity. And opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how important this is. Coming from a region where uh, you see a sense of hopelessness and how destructive this can be, especially for the youth. Do you think that, I mean, so 50,000 in Canada's population of 36 million, I believe at this point, maybe a little more, it's not a big amount. But it certainly, I believe, got a lot of public attention, uh, particularly in the Middle East. How did that play out? I mean, give me a little sense of um, what did it do to Canada's brand, for lack of a better term? So I think Canada's brand in the Middle East has really shot up since Syrian refugee crisis and the way that they dealt with it, whether it's, you know, your prime minister uh, greeting uh, the Syrian refugees in the airport. And I remember he was uh, handing them coats as well uh, and jackets. And I've also watched documentaries and Jordanians and others have as well about uh, how their their life they go there and they they open businesses there mm-hmm. and their their children are going to public schools and you know to to compare the the sort of quality of public schools in in the region and in Canada they see the big difference so it's really made Canada as a place of hope in a in a very positive way can and I ask you Anna those images you know are infamous now for Canadians I mean we remember those images of Justin Trudeau going to the airport did they really get strong publicity here in, in yes. the Middle East? Yes, they did. That's fascinating. Yeah, they did. And uh, I can tell you it's it's not only refugees. I can tell you that many people in the region I talk to, you know, when you tell them about Canada, they see it as a place where there is social justice, efficiency, um, everything that sort of uh, is lacking today in the Middle East. So it, it's something, but they also see it as a place where there is less, you know, marginalization mm-hmm. and maybe racism towards them. Um, Which, I mean, I, I would say certainly comparatively, but of course, for many Canadians, we've also seen a rise of intolerance, a rise of, of you know, this very alt-right type of intolerance. But one thing that, uh, you know, I find very interesting about that is, you know, with this Saudi-Canadian kerfuffle that we saw, there was a great deal of concern about how this affected the business community, you know, that this was going to undermine business prospects in the Middle East. And one thing that always stands out to me is that actually our, our Canadian values and pushing them forward, whether it's multiculturalism or human rights, these sort of quintessential liberal values can also open business contacts. I mean, one of the things that I heard in some of the work that I did with business people in the region, the Middle East, was we signed that contract with the Canadians as opposed to the Americans or the Brits when the offer was the same because it was Canada. Because I know that my you know second cousin who lives in Vancouver is treated with the kind of respect that I would expect. So, you know, we don't often hear about these kinds of stories about how that Canadian brand opens business opportunities. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, human rights and, you know, the values. Unfortunately, you know, today this is becoming maybe for a while 
uh, people took them for granted, whether it's democratization, democracy, human rights, values that we, you know, we always seeked and looked at the West too. Mm -hmm. um, what we saw with the Saudi-Canadian is that it you can lose it fast mm -hmm. and the people that are holding on to it are fighting for it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when we look at protests in the region, whether it's in Jordan or other places, they always talk about, we want democracy, we want justice, uh, we want uh, a rule of law, we want uh, a process that represents us. So in an ironic way, mm -hmm. the people themselves, they want these values as well. Now, you, you mentioned uh, about Canada uh, that there's also, like in other countries that have received Syrian refugees, there is also a rise in intolerance as well. But I always like to say that if you're going to move to and you decide, you make the decision to move to Canada or the US or to Germany or to other countries, it takes two to tango. You have to also, from the side of the Syrians and others who move to these countries, mm -hmm. to attempt to assimilate and respect and be part of that culture as well. And, um, you know, you can't be isolated. Absolutely. You can't say, I'm not part of it. I'm not, you know, and you, you, you just isolate yourself and go to work and come back. No, you have to embrace also the place you're in. You represent a people, you represent a, a region, mm -hmm. you know, you have to also uh, do your part. Absolutely. Thank you, Rana. And now let's turn to Dr. John Ravenhill, the director of the Balsley School of International Affairs. John, why should people come here? Well, thank you, Besma, and, and, and thank you to you and Matthew for all of your work on these podcasts, which have become an important part of the school's activities. The Balsley School of International Affairs is, I think most people would now acknowledge one of Canada's leading providers of graduate education in international affairs and global governance. The school offers three master's programs, a Master of Arts in Global Governance, a Master of International Public Policy, and a joint Master of International Public Policy MBA, Master of Business Administration program, and also a PhD program in global governance. So we welcome your engagement with the school and for potential students, please do check out our programs and we hope to see you here in the future.